that hymn that we just uh, sang moment by moment, um, there's a bit of a story behind that. Uh, there was this uh, gentleman who just spent a couple decades living in Australia and he, uh, he was there digging gold down in Geelong um, and then he returned to um, uh, Britain and when he returned he, um, he went to Chicago with the, the writer of this hymn, uh, Daniel Whittle and uh, when the two were spending much time together evangelizing he said to Daniel Whittle, oh I don't, I don't really uh, like the hymn day by day that much, nor do I like the hymn, um, uh, what's that hymn? Uh, I need thee every hour, uh, because we really need Jesus moment by moment. And uh, after he said that, Daniel Whittle, uh, that thought impressed on his mind, and he wrote that hymn moment by moment. Uh, but we now come to uh, the message uh, in Galatians chapter 2. Um, the Bible tells us a lot about the life beyond, about eternity, and it also tells us about life now. But it goes further than that. The Bible speaks tough truths to us, the inescapable fact that humanity is plagued with sin. All civilizations throughout history have struggled with that very truth. The question echoes throughout world history, is man innately evil or is man simply misguided? And through time, man's evil ways and nature have demanded laws to govern that evil. That's why our legal system is in place. There are others that believe man has simply evolved, that his problem isn't moral, but that there's a genetic deficiency in the DNA. And these people believe that there will come a day in science that man will become his own genetic engineer, even to the point that maybe we can take the personality, the self, out of the human and bypass the sin that has been a curse to us. Well, the Bible tells us very clearly that there is none righteous, no, not one, no exceptions. There is none that seeketh after God, there is none that doeth good. Way back in Genesis, God did make a perfect being in righteousness and a perfect being in holiness. But man's disobedience brought into existence a nature that will now profoundly affect what he is. Within that little boy and that little girl, there will not only be the image of humanity, but also that of sin. And no matter what that child ever does, no human will ever be able to change or remove their sin nature. But the Bible then tells us something else. Man cannot save himself from this plight, just as he can't change a leopard's spots. No man can come into righteousness from unrighteousness. No matter how much man tries, no matter what he discovers, he will never be able to save his life. That is a fact of the Bible. And because that is impossible, man ever saving himself, God intervenes. And how does he do it? He sends a man to earth. We may say, but man's the problem, man's the dilemma. Man is the great hopeless one, according to scripture. So why would God even contemplate that the answer is found in a man? This man was prophesied 
One night in the city of Nazareth, God brought about a conception by passing the seed of man. God would fashion that body in the womb of a virgin who will give birth to this boy. And this boy, this man-child, would do that which no other man has been able to do. He will not only be, be conceived and born sinlessly, but he will be the absolute perfect man who will keep all the law of God. And in every aspect, he will be impeccable. And through this impeccable man, God will bring salvation for all. Is this possible? You ask. Can you take an impeccable man and substitute his life, his nature, his obedience, his righteousness, that's so vast, so infinitely great, that potentially it can take the place of every human being that's ever lived and bring them into a righteous, just relationship with God? The answer is yes. And what we must do, according to the gospel, is that we must believe on this man. And that through a mystery of heaven, God, because of this man, will forgive me of all my sins. I can't change my life. I can't change my sins. God won't even go back in history and correct me as if I've never lived that, that I've never acted in that. Through one man, if I believe in him to be my substitute, God will forgive me. There is something else, though, something that if the Bible doesn't tell us about it, we're still in deep trouble. I'll believe the book when it says God will be faithful, he will be right, he will be just. If I confess my sins, he will forgive me for those. In fact, he will cleanse me of all my unrighteousness. But now I've got a great problem. And if the Bible doesn't reveal this to me, I'm still in a hopeless situation. My problem is this. Though God has forgiven me, what I am, how I was born, is going to take me back to sin. And this is where God has performed another miracle. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, he's going to let this perfect man in the mystery of omnipresence across history, across geography, he's going to let this perfect man live in me. And this man, Jesus Christ, wants to live his life through me. If the Bible hadn't revealed that, I would say, first, it is impossible for the unrighteous to become righteous. And second, that which has been made righteous through a miracle, not of my own doing, but to maintain righteousness, that's impossible. I've got so many problems. I've got my sin nature from whom I came, the appetites, the tendencies, the inclinations of my life. Unless God performs another miracle, I'm going to keep going in those problems. And this is where God starts revealing to us through his word what this spirit, this new man, can do. Ever since Adam and Eve, we've had an innate sense of good and evil. If you use a cat for soccer practice, you just know you're doing something bad. You don't need anyone to tell you. Being able to separate good from bad is a useful skill if you're picking apples or hiring an employee. It's also the basis of every man-made religion. But our knowledge of good and evil only goes as far as dividing, driving us to our knees in humility and repentance. Good and evil is what the law reveals. Paul, when he wrote in the scriptures, said that the law is holy, just, and good. When a religious person discovers the law, his initial response is delight. 
finally, some good instructions to live by. But when he tries to keep the law and finds himself breaking it despite his best intentions, he tries harder and fails again. Then the law condemns him. Worse yet, sin, which he did not know he had, begins to aggravate him. The law is good, but those who rely on it place themselves under a curse. How can something that is good be bad for us? Is the law defective? No, the law is good. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with flesh. Our flesh is too weak to cope with the law. And it's not just the law. Anything that is good will become bad for us once the flesh gets involved. Romans 8.13 For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Many commentators say that the theme of this book, Galatians, is the contrast between law and grace. But that's not the whole story. It's not the key. It's all about what part of man goes to the law. The self-seeking flesh of man. This is the greater burden of the epistle to the Galatians. It deals with the powers of the flesh versus that of the spirit. Once Christians begin their life afresh in the spirit and through the power of the Holy Ghost, are they then to continue in life through and by the power of the flesh? Has the flesh now been Christianized so that there is a power to keep himself? The fleshly versus the spiritual Christian. No, there is no goodness of the flesh. There is no righteousness of the flesh. And there is no acceptability of the flesh, even in the Christian Therefore, the flesh must be destroyed through crucifixion, and the spirit must be the victor in the Christian life. There's a principle there, that the Christian lives with the power of the spirit and the weakness of the flesh in the one body. The book of Galatians was written to a group of churches, not just one, throughout the province of Galatia. This epistle from Paul will go from church to church, for these people in the province. It was a prominent province in Asia Minor, and the name comes from two origins, Gallo-Grecia, Galatia, from Gaul, present-day France, and Greece. So the Galatians were Gentiles that had never been under the law before they were Christians. Julius Caesar said this about the Gauls. He said, the infirmity of the Gauls is that they are fickle in their resolves and fond of change and not to be trusted. So the leading characteristic seems to have been fickleness, which is also prominent in this opening chapter of Galatians. In, one, in Galatians 1 verse 6, Paul says this, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from the gospel. When Paul had visited them for the first time, they had received him with open arms and shown him much kindness. But afterwards, when false teachers appeared to them, the Galatians became cold and indifferent towards the Apostle Paul. They had received the gospel, yes, but they were about to give up the gospel of grace and turn back to the law. In Galatians 1 verse 6, both verbs, I marvel, and the word removed, both are in the present tense. Paul is saying, this isn't over with. It's, it hasn't been resolved yet. Someone who is fickle, 
they're not set, they're not established. And so this was the character, even from a secular perspective, about the Galatians. And Paul acknowledges this is an ongoing problem in the opening of this letter. Now, the Galatians had heavily turned away from Paul, while previously they dearly loved him. And these false teachers undermined Paul's message and character. They taught that a simple faith in Jesus Christ was not sufficient for salvation. That to be saved, a keeping of the law was necessary. And that a Christian must observe the law of Moses. And what's the word for this kind of gospel? This is legalism. Anything that is needed extra to be saved other than the grace of God. To establish themselves, these false teachers attacked Paul's authority. As Paul was independent of Peter in his ministry in Jerusalem and had not been sent by Peter, they belittled Paul. But if you read Galatians 1, Paul then goes on and says that after he was saved, he didn't visit the apostles to find the gospel out. He went to the desert where Jesus Christ personally revealed the gospel to him. Then in chapter 2, Paul goes up again to Jerusalem, but God told him to, to defend the gospel. Here, Paul shows the Galatians the great agony and grief he had gone through, just to protect the message of salvation by grace alone. But then Paul goes on and tells of another incident. In chapter 2, verse 12, For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles, but when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself. And what was the reason? And this is inspired by the Holy Spirit. The reason is, Peter feared them, which were of the circumcision. Paul had gone into bat for these Gentiles. He had stood for them. He cleared this up amongst the Gentiles. But now the false teachers came and said that Paul's gospel is not correct. You've still got to follow the law. You've still got to become a Christian by the Jewish ways of the law. What's happened to Peter? Here we have an important reminder. Our problem isn't simply the sin that we inherited from Adam, though that, that does necessitate God's salvation. But here in Galatians 2.12, there is something more. Influences from outside. It isn't just the sin that we were born with, but the world that we were born into. What Peter was implying by eating only with the Jews is that Jesus wasn't sufficient, but that the law has made distinctions again. Whether it be Paul's world or the one here and now, something or rather some people from outside Antioch came and Peter was affected, influenced by them. Let's turn to Ephesians briefly, if you will. Ephesians chapter 2. And reading from verse 1. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. In time past, before God saved us, we walked according to the course of this world. And let's stop here. This world, we walked it, we breathed it, we lived it, we saw it, we heard it. This was our life. The word course here is the age or generation in which we live. The generation in which we grew up in. This age, 
This generation pervades every aspect of our lives, and I was a small part of it. We walked according to what we saw or what we experienced of the world. But that's the course of this world. We now have this word cosmos for world in our King James. God made the cosmos out of utter chaos back in Genesis 1. We can hear birds, we can see grass, trees, experience temperature, wind, the fragrance of flowers, the world that God made. Man can make plastic, synthetic sights, but that's all artificial. Only God was able to make the great outdoors, and he did that out of chaos. But man believes that out of this chaos, he can make his own cosmos, that through his own counsel, he can take the chaos of sin and the utter folly and failures of his life and somehow bring beauty out of it. And so the Bible speaks of these two cosmoses. There is the cosmos of God, and this is what he does for us. But now man is trying to create something for himself throughout time, out of all the evil, the failures, the violence, all in the flesh. And so this verse says in Ephesians, you weren't only dead in trespasses and sins, but because of what we were inside, we were drawn to the world outside. A world that is dying, a world hostile to Christ. What generation are we in now? An age where society is no longer based on absolutes, where there is no right or wrong, where many preachers do not even have the right to preach, thus saith the Lord. This is our age where knowledge is at our fingertips. We can find almost anything, but the vast majority of it is refuse that will destroy our lives permanently, and even more so in the generations to come. This is now the only thing that young children have ever known. Toddlers on iPads, the internet, their life. Entertainment is now also a synthetic world, and that's their playground. Later on in Ephesians 5, the Bible says that we are to prove what is acceptable unto the Lord. And if it cannot be proven, we must reprove it. The world of this age, God is telling us, don't walk among them. It's the course of this world. Here in Ephesians 2, the devil is an integral part of the world. Where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all, we all, had our conversation, our way of life, in the lusts of our flesh. Yes, that's where we were. We were a product of the world. This is the age of self, the age of promotion and gratification of self. And we must be careful. We must be vigilant. The church at Antioch, the church at Condal Park, must remain united, and the only way to do that is if God's people get down on their knees and seek the Spirit of God, not self, not flesh. 1 John 5.4 For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. As we discovered in the beginning, something within us is drawn to the world around us, the false teachings around us, the law, the sin, the things of our old man, and that's the flesh. Our sin and our flesh, they're no longer our master, but they will always be our enemy. 
Let's return to Galatians 2. Back here in this chapter, the false teachers wanted to lead the Christians back under the law and bind them to Jewish traditions. Paul exposed this influence in Peter when he was drawn back to living under the law. The hope for Jews is an earthly promised land, an earthly kingdom. They would tell the Gentiles to keep the, keep the Torah and prepare the earth for Jesus' kingdom, investing time and energy into things of the earth and following the Jews' traditions. But Paul is declaring that we are already in a heavenly position. Remember on the road to Damascus, God told Paul that I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. When Paul persecuted Christians, he persecuted Jesus Christ. Believers are in Jesus Christ. In verse 17, Paul is saying, or rather he's being accused of giving Christians the license to sin. If we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners. Is therefore Christ the minister of sin? He says, God forbid. The very next verse, verse 18, he says, that's on the individual. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself or I prove myself a transgressor. We identify with Christ in both his death and his life. In verse 19, I am crucified with Christ. Paul speaks here of not crucifying by imitation or example. No, this means that sin is crucified in Christ. This is now our, our identity because we have gladly received Christ through faith. Sin was the master, but now Christ is. But sin lingers. It's still our enemy through the flesh. Our physical body still remains. Nevertheless, I live physically, yet not I, our flesh. Our flesh doesn't dictate us. Paul writes, keep your hands off the law. We're done with that. No one was ever supposed to become clean through the law. It was just a mirror to show us how dirty we were and how much we needed Christ. Mirrors don't clean people. When we are lured back under the law, we live by merit. We say things like, I deserve mercy because I do good. I've been freed from sin because I followed these rules. And as soon as we live upon merit, we start to compare ourselves with others. I'm better than him because I can discipline myself. Conflicts and tension ensues, and this was the case with the Galatians. With the law, the emphasis falls on the external to change the internal. A fleshly life under the law can externally appear to be like a life in Christ. But living under the law can only produce sin. Either you become constantly frustrated and guilt-ridden because you can't manage to keep the law perfectly, or you think you are keeping it and are full of pride. No, keeping the law is an outright rejection of God. Life in the flesh as a Christian, it's not just failing an exam, it's striking the examiner in the face. Christians belong to a completely different realm and should no longer live in the flesh and be lured to this world. Why? Because we are in Christ and all differences end there. 
when we are born again, what has become of our old identity? Crucified, mortified. We, because of Christ, live for heaven. We invest our time, our energy for heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt. And we no longer make a distinction between God's children. Jews, Greeks, bond and free, male and female, we are all in Christ. Now, it may seem strange to say, I live, but I don't live. I'm dead, though I'm not dead. I have the law, though I don't have the law. But this passage is sweet to the Christian. And why? A Christian is not one who has no sin, but one to whom God imputes not his sin through faith in Christ. When the law accuses the flesh and sin terrifies him, his spirit looks to Christ. And when he has received Christ and grasped him by faith, he has with him the conqueror of the law, of sin, of death, of the devil. And Christ rules and reigns over them so they cannot hurt the Christian. But once a Christian is separated from Christ, there is only flesh to rely on and the law to follow and sin that's produced. Living in the spirit under his grace glorifies God. We're serving him. We're leading to freedom and true worship in spirit and truth rather than serving the law which leads to guilt or pride. Trying to keep the law is like hanging a beautiful fruit on a tree. It's not produced by the tree and it's actually dead and it won't last very long before it rots. The living fruit that remains good is that which comes and grows directly from the heart of the tree, the spirit. Galatians 5.16 Walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's how the Bible puts it. Imagine if the moon wanted to shine by itself. That's what happens when Christians try to be holy in the flesh. Sunday isn't called Sunday because that's when you can soak up the sun and then shine yourself. No, sorry, building a life for your own glory is defiance towards God. What do you really need? It's not the riches of God's gift, but it's God himself. We must walk in the light, constantly in the light. Just as we have been justified without our efforts, but through faith, so should we now live. Galatians 5.25, if we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. According to Romans 12.2, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. We're being transformed. We're not transforming ourselves. It's really God who transforms us. Our responsibility is to take the means that God uses to transform us. That is, to see and know the glory of God through his word. We all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. In the Bible, we get plenty of examples of those who walked after the Spirit. There is, of course, Jesus Christ. Jesus rejected labels that people gave him. He ate and fellowshiped with whosoever had faith in him. Politicians and religious leaders tried to control him. Even Satan tried to tempt him. 
but Jesus had no needs that weren't fully met in his heavenly father. Jesus wasn't moved by success, nor was he troubled by apparent failure. He could sleep through storms. He was perfectly secure and completely and totally free. How about Barnabas? He who reached out to Paul when none of the apostles, the pillars of the church, trusted the man once known as Saul. They regarded him from a worldly perspective and were afraid of him. But Acts 9.27 says that Barnabas took Saul and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. Barnabas saw with the eyes of a faith with the eyes of faith and a life lived in the spirit what no one else saw. And Paul, as we know, became a faithful apostle used mightily of God. Jesus himself revealed the grace of God to the world and Paul wrote it all down. With words from the Holy Spirit, Paul preached against false teaching. He had been brought up in the old ways of the law, but served God in the new covenant of grace and lived in the spirit. In the law, he was unqualified. By his own admission, he counted all things as loss. Poor was the scholar of scholars, but yet he counted that as dung. We were reminded recently about being led and guided by the Lord. Paul going to Macedonia was another example of living after the spirit and not in the flesh. And as a result, the Philippians received the gospel and we received that joy-filled epistle in the Bible. At the end of his earthly life, Paul said that his flesh was worth nothing compared to finishing his race well. His affections were so fixed upon things above that he was torn between earth and heaven. For him, to live was Christ and to die was gain. When Paul was awaiting execution in Rome, we know what was going through his mind because he wrote one final letter. In his second letter to Timothy, Paul penned this. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. In the last line of this last letter, this spirit-filled servant of the Lord reminds us of the secret of living well. The Lord Jesus Christ be with thy spirit. What do we learn from these examples? They're a picture of how life is meant to be. They expose the poverty of a life lived according to the flesh. In Galatians 6, Paul says, and you can tell he's almost fed up with the situation. If you continue to sow in the flesh, you're going to reap corruption. One of our biggest blind spots is the idea that good things are good for us while bad things are bad for us. But the real issue is life versus death, flesh versus spirit. If we sow to the flesh, we will reap corruption regardless of what you do. We may do a lot of good things externally, walking after the flesh, but it won't do us any good. The flesh profiteth nothing. Live like this and you will just be a moral sinner. Jesus didn't suffer and die to make sinners good, but to make the dead live. 
Christ liveth in me, and Christ is my life. When we walk after the flesh, we're acting like the old man we used to be. We can spend all our days doing good works, but none of it will glorify God because they are our works and not his. We may feel like we're making a mark, but in reality, we're just accumulating fuel for the fire to be burnt up. Sadly, this is exactly how many Christians live. If you ask Christians to define the works of the flesh, they can recite Paul's list from Galatians 5. Immorality, idolatry, jealousy, the biggies. It never occurs to them that walking after the flesh can also bring death to the routines of everyday life. Do you see the danger? It's not as much the what that you do as it is the how you go about it. If it just feels good, do it. That's gratifying and walking after the flesh. It's the devil's fault. It's my sin nature's fault. It's my circumstances fault. That's walking in the flesh. I must build up my reputation. That's walking in the flesh. It's all about the how. How are you with your God? In Matthew 5, 43 to 48, the gospel writers write, under grace, on this side of Calvary, God calls us to a higher standard, free from condemnation and strife. Jesus said, and these are the words of the Lord, But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans do the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. We are justified by faith in the death of Jesus. Now we can identify with him in both his death and his life. And no law, no matter how rigorous, can ever place us in such a position. It's not ultimately law or grace that our life hangs upon. These are merely tests of whether we live by the flesh or we live by the spirit. Flesh, tried by the law, produces death and sin. The spirit, tried by grace, produces life. Nevertheless I live, yet not the self-seeking fleshly I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the physical flesh, which awaits a future glorification, I live presently by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Humanity has a sin problem. And after salvation has been received by grace through faith, humanity still has a flesh problem. But nevertheless, we live, yet not in our fleshly selves, but Christ liveth in us, in you. Let's realise that sin permeates humanity, even beyond that day we received Christ Jesus as Saviour. Let us be reminded of the finished work of Christ for our justification. 
Let us be warned that the world around us is hostile, no matter how much societies embellish evil with fleshly attractions, no matter how much seemingly religious people promote false gospels of self-glory. Let us be challenged to live by the Spirit in our sanctification. Let us be revived, knowing that Christ, the Son of God, continues to live in you, in me, so that we are empowered to do that which is well-pleasing and glorifying to God, in spirit, in truth, in humility, in the fear of God, in lowliness of mind. What amazing confidence for those who have received him. Christ liveth in you, dear brethren. Do you believe it? We're now going to sing a hymn. 